Today we're joined uh, happily by Gleb Sipersky, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Disaster Avoidance Experts. Um, I was introduced to Gleb by my good friend and colleague Karima Mariana Arthur of uh, Wordsmith Report. Uh, and I am so glad she did. Gleb and I have spoken previously and I found his insight and experience fascinating. As a result, I'd like now to share some of that with you now in this podcast. Okay, <clears throat> hello Gleb, and uh, thank you for joining me on this call. Um, perhaps you could start with just explaining your background and, and how that's led you to create your approach to decision making. Happy to, Navel, and thank you again for having me on, and I'm very glad that Karima introduced us. She's wonderful. So, without further ado, talking about my background, actually it all began in my childhood. My parents were unfortunately people who fought a lot with each other, and they make some kind of bad, some bad decisions about finances. So, for example, my mom would, you know, she liked nice clothing, so she would buy a $50 sweater. And she'd come back home and my dad would yell at her because he thinks that you can't, shouldn't buy a sweater that's worth anywhere over $20. <laughs> so <laughs> things like this. They would have fights like that all the time. And they were both very gut-oriented people. When they felt something was right, that meant it was absolutely right. And anyone who disagreed with them was absolutely wrong, including each other. <laughs> so that was their perspective. And I saw them fighting over stupid stuff. And, and I thought even as a kid that it was not the right thing to do to fight over the stupid financial issues. But even worse was this one really big fight. So my dad, he was a real estate agent and he made variable commission because variable salary, he worked in commissions. And at one time he told my mom that he made very little money when he actually made a lot of money. And he hid this money, he used it to buy an apartment elsewhere and leased it out for several years. When she found out several years later, she was very upset very, very angry. They had a big blowout fight and they actually ended up separating for a while as a result of that fight. And I stayed with my mom and so saw my dad pretty rarely for a period until they reconciled, but she could never really trust him again. That really impacted me, both the little fights and that huge one. And I saw that my parents weren't gods and they made bad decisions about money and once I started noticing that, I started looking out at the broader society. So I was born in 1981. I came of age in you know, the 1999 when tech leaders were partying like it's 1999 for those who remember that Prince song, maybe that age is. So they were on the front pages of the Wall Street Journal and CNBC for all the right reasons in 1999. Just a couple of years later, in 2002, there was a dot-com bust and they lost all this money. Investors lost billions. Ordinary people lost their life savings. And they were, the tech leaders were in the Wall Street Journal for all the wrong reasons. And even worse was a couple of years later when we discovered the fraudulent accounting scandals with Tyco, WorldCom, Enron, the Bernie Ebers of the world, who yeah. actually used fraudulent accounting to hide their losses from the dot-com bust. Now, that was horrible decision-making. Again, lots of people lost their life savings, especially the employees in these companies who invested into the retirement funds. And I saw what kind of terrible decision-making these folks made because honestly, they were just, they delayed the inevitable by just a year or two and they resulted in the bankruptcy of Enron and other cases like Tyco, very bad blows to and the company. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Very bad blows to the company and the leaders then just went to jail in handcuffs and 
for themselves, it made, they made terrible decisions as well as for everyone around them. So seeing that, I, I always cared about people. I still care about people, and I always cared about people. I wanted to reduce suffering, and I thought that, hey, this is an opportunity I have to reduce suffering by looking at why do we make such screwed up decisions and how can we make better ones. So I went into training, uh, first training, then consulting and coaching. So of course, first studying, then training, consulting, and coaching in these topics. And I've been doing training, consulting, and coaching in these for about 20 years now. And then I also realized I need more formal education on the cutting edge of decision-making. So I went into academia and I've been studying cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics for the last 15 years. So the book that is out right now, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, combines the cutting edge neuroscience in how do we actually avoid the bad decisions and make the best decisions according to extensive peer-reviewed research, as well as my experience of over 20 years consulting, coaching, and training for business leaders, nonprofit leaders across the world. So, so, so you say never go with your gut, and, and clearly you've, you've demonstrated there a number of uh, organizations where perhaps um, to a degree, it may be down to gut-based decisions, but um, you know I'm not conscious of of, of the actual gut decisions and, as, as against the uh, the standard analysis that would have been taking place. But talk to me a little bit more about um, about why never go with your gut in business decisions. So the problem with going with your gut in business decisions is that our gut is actually not adapted for the modern business environment. It's adapted for the savannah environment. When we were lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, we were hunters and foragers, you know, hunting mammoths and you know, foraging mushrooms and so on. That's what our gut is adapted for. Our gut is adapted to have two very strong phenomena. One is tribalism. That means that we tend to like people who look like us. We tend to like people who think like us, who have similar values, and we don't like people who don't. That was fine and dandy and good in the savannah environment when it was very important for us to maintain tribal cohesion in order to survive. Otherwise, our ancestors would die if their tribe fell apart. Or, and it was very important for them to stick with their tribe members. Otherwise, the, they would be kicked out of their tribe and they would die. So that was one aspect of tribalism. Now, another aspect of tribalism is our desire to climb to the top of the tribal hierarchy because that's how we can get the most resources and then reproduce our, send our genes all over. So we are tempted to do that. And this is the reasons now we are discovering why the leaders, why the Bernie Ebers of the world, the WorldCom, Tyco and Enron, why they used fraudulent accounting methods to hide their losses, because they didn't want to lose face. They didn't want to lose social status. And they were willing to do, to take these short-term rewards of not losing it for a year or two in exchange for the long-term consequences of going to jail for a, for, for a long time. It was a very bad decision. It was a gut reaction. But that's what's the kind of decisions we make when we go with our gut. So that's kind of one. That's the gut reactions. And the other aspect is the fight or flight response. It was very important for our ancestors to jump at 100 shadows in order to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger, so the fight, flight response, and to fight attacking tribal members. That's the fight response. Now, you might notice that in our modern world, we have many less saber-toothed tigers, but we still react to threatening emails as though they're saber-toothed tigers. <laughs> you know? 
So we make very quick fight or flight response decisions that, and these are decisions often end up badly. We are the descendants of the people who had great fight or flight responses, who had great tribal reactions, and yeah. they're ingrained in our gut reactions and our primitive natural savage gut reactions, and they cause us to make lots of bad decisions. Yeah, you know, I, um, in our organization, we talk about bringing simplicity uh, to complexity. Uh, mm. by using the right information at the right time in the right way with the right people and uh, trying to bring that kind of framework of simplicity into complexity uh, mm. is often seen or perceived by individuals as, as, as potentially slowing a process down. Mm. Obviously, we're conscious of the fact that by going through that process, we actually accelerate to the end point, mm -hmm. um, having just slightly freewheeled whilst we do that we can then move much quicker when we've got everything in the right place so uh, it was interesting what you were talking about there in terms of the fight and flight and the, and the, and the reactive uh, mindset in a way or reactive responsiveness um, because there is often this desire to move fast and I say well that, that's great unless it's the wrong decision and then you're moving fast in the wrong direction. <laughs> that's very insightful Neville and yeah. <laughs> we actually have research supporting what you're saying. So there was research done on firefighters in the UK and firefighters what we found from this research was that firefighting mistakes about 80% of firefighting mistakes come from human error mm -hmm. and comes from quick decisions, human error. So what we, so what scholars did who were researching this topic is they trained firefighting leaders on asking themselves three questions before they went into fighting the fire yeah. in the heat of the moment. And they had time, you know, when they were actually trained to ask these questions, the questions slowed them down a bit. Once they actually were trained to ask these questions and they practiced using them, they didn't, it slowed them down very little, it didn't really slow them down much at all. And when you compared a few months later, the trained firefighting leaders versus the not trained ones, they had about the same speed of decision-making, but their decisions were much better. And they and made reduced, reduced impact of human error, because in yes, those situations, exactly. the impact of human error is, can be quite significant. And it can be uh, the same way in business, right? The impact of yeah, human error. Exactly. Is, but exactly. there in the fire, uh, in the heat of the moment, we can immediately see its impact. Yeah, and, and, and those three questions, um, being able to get them moving quicker. We're, we've been working recently in the world of neuroagility um, with uh, Andre Vermeulen, uh, just looking at uh, how by being more neuroagile, we actually move through that questioning process in a, in a quicker way. So mm -hmm. in fact, rather than slowing down, we may even be able to get to a, a better decision quicker. Um, so that's an interesting uh, aside, but um, you know, it, a lot of gurus, they talk about um, trusting instinct, which is completely the opposite to what both you and I are believing here. Mm -hmm. um, unless, of course, there's some framework of training and, and, and responses to make better judgments. Um, so instinct becomes uh, informed instinct. Uh, in a way. Um, so how do, how, does, how do those people's sort of dis, uh, um, edict around trusting instincts, how does that sit with you? 
It doesn't. Unfortunately, people like Tony Robbins who tell others to be primal and go with your natural state or Malcolm Gladwell who tells people to just blink. Those are terrible, terrible pieces of advice. They tell that to people and people like hearing that because it's very comfortable. <laughs> people like hearing to the, the others tell them to do what's comfortable, to do what they would like to do naturally. It's like doctors, you know, a hundred years ago selling snake oil, which was a mixture of cocaine, <laughs> yeah. you know, alcohol, and sugar. Yeah. Wouldn't you like to have that sort of treatment? Uh, solved solved everything for a very yeah. short while. Exactly. It, cure, it makes you feel better. It doesn't actually take care of the cause of yeah. the disease but it makes you feel better. So that's the kind of advice that Malcolm Gladwell and Tony Robbins and so many other business gurus give. They give the snake oil of business advice and they are the snake oil sellers of the business world. And it's terrible, but people buy it because it causes them to feel good. Whereas what you and I are talking about, how do you actually make the right decisions? It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to ask yourself hard questions. It's uncomfortable to slow down. It goes against our instincts. It goes against our intuitions. It goes against our primal reactions to retrain ourselves, to ask the hard, tough questions that would cause us to make the right decisions because it often causes us to realize that our preferred choices are not the right choices. I mean, look at the evidence, let's say on mergers and acquisitions. 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail. We know this. We know extensive research has shown that on average, about 80% of mergers and acquisitions will fail. But business leaders keep going into them because they feel good about them. They're very confident that they are the awesome ones and they ignore all the other people whose mergers and acquisitions failed and they think, well, those people are stupid, I'm great. Well, you know what? <laughs> all those other people are thinking exactly the same. Uh, and, and, and to be fair, they're all going into these mergers and acquisitions with different people. Yes, uh, and people will always be a a huge variable in these processes, and it's something we've mm -hmm. been working very heavily on in terms of how do we how do we ensure we make the most out of all of the power of the people within a merger and acquisition. How do we get the most out of that? It's easy to get the processes <laughs> and the systems, but the people element is very often the most overlooked, and of course that's where the the bad decisions very often lie. Yes, most of our bad decisions tend to be around people. And in mergers and acquisitions, the biggest problem tends to be culture. Yeah. That's the thing that people don't look at. They look at the external elements, the, you know, the, what are the finances involved? What are the products? What are the systems? What are the processes? Sometimes they don't even look at that, but they <laughs> look at the external, the visible things. They don't look at the, the culture. They don't look at the, you know, if you have uh, open and dynamic culture in an organization with that merging with one that has a hierarchical and authoritarian culture, you're likely to not have a successful merger. Yeah. You're likely to have a very, very challenging situation where people from one organization will leave because they don't like the culture. They're not used yeah. to it. And that's something that mergers and acquisitions leaders often don't look at. So this is just a case study. One of many types of decisions where we get decisions wrong. There is a reason about 90% of product launches fail you know, into actually get the kind of outcomes they want. And we can give many more examples. Yeah, so, yeah. So the gut reactions, the instincts cause business leaders to make really bad decisions, especially when they're following and when they're told to trust their gut, to talk, trust their intuitions. In fact, what the research on this shows, the cognitive neuroscience research and behavioral economics research shows is that leaders 
And the more important the decision is, the more they tend to trust their gut, the more they tend to avoid looking at the data, avoid consulting with others, and the more they tend to trust their gut because they feel more emotionally attached to the decision. And the more emotionally attached they are to the decision, the less reluctant they are to use the reason and logic and the more inclined they are to go with their emotions. Yeah. This is very unfortunate, but this is what happens. And as I looked more into this with, uh, in, in your book, uh, it, it kept occurring to me a phrase that I've often used in the past is, you know, very often it is the solution that goes looking for the question <laughs> rather than the other way around in these instances. And, 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 and very often, therefore, it's driven by really not illogical time um, frameworks or time targets you know, target dates are set before actually we've really gone through the detail of what needs to be achieved in that time scale. It's yes. like, you know, we will have it on this day uh, and everybody else has to, to. Now, as a result of which, very often what we see is um, what I would call surface level appreciation of the culture uh, and people uh, and the hidden wiring, uh, which is what will trip people up most frequently. Uh, is is never really explored because they're just a there isn't time and that's even if it's thought about. Uh, so uh, so that that tied in very well uh, and and it resonated with me then because um, having watched an organisation looking at uh, major change and going through their own organisation uh, and using what I would call traditional analysis tools like SWOT. Um, you you flag the dangers or of of uh, using or misusing that type of analysis. Yes. Uh, just tell us a little bit more about uh, about the dangers there. Go ahead. Yes. So traditional analyses like SWOT carry a lot of hidden danger. Now the SWOT involves looking at the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, whether for an individual leader and their career or for an organization more typically as a whole, a specific project. The problem with using SWOT is that it gives people false comfort because if you don't take care, if you don't think about all the dangerous judgment errors that we tend to make because of how our brain is wired, leaders tend to fall into what's called the optimism bias, where they tend to be way too optimistic about their strengths, about the opportunities, and ignore, underestimate the risks and the threats. I've seen this literally every time when they come into an organization and they show me their previous SWOT analysis and they say, here, look, we've done the SWOT analysis. Aren't we good boys and girls? <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it and, on the wall and we'll frame it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then I look at it and I see, well, is this strength really as big of a strength as you're thinking it is? And what about this weakness? You know, a lot of organizations. So for example, I was working with a healthcare organization uh, and uh, in 2015, and they showed me their SWOT analysis, and I said, hey, why does your SWOT analysis not look at the risks, political risks to the Obamacare program the, in the United States, the health insurance issues? And the leadership team really thought that in 2016, there there's pretty much no way that a Republican would win and that Obamacare would be threatened. And I had to convince them and show them that there's a, you know, even though you may think that there's very low likelihood of a Republican winning, you still want to address these risks because just in case it might happen, you'll be getting a lot of trouble if it actually does happen. 
And they eventually, after a lot of persuasion, did it. And they were very thankful after they did it because a lot of their business depended on effective insurance for, lower, for lower-income people. And then once Obamacare was threatened, it was a real problem for them. Now, they were able to be protected somewhat because they, were, they put in place risks management strategies to address potential problems to Obamacare, but they would have been in real trouble if they didn't. And that's a typical example of what happens when risks are underestimated, when threats are underestimated, and when strengths and opportunities are yeah. overestimated. And scenario planning hasn't really taken place as you're looking through that to, to just, you know, um, strength test or, or stretch test uh, what you're actually um, assuming or, or, or putting into the equation. Um, you talked about biases and you talked yes. about the optim- optim- opti- uh, optimistic bias. Um, you also talk about uh, survivorship biases and cognitive biases. Um, let, let's explore those a little bit more, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So cognitive biases are all the types of different decision-making errors we make because of how our brain is wired. A lot of it comes from our evolutionary background. So the, it was important for us to be optimistic in the savannah environment because if we, if we realistically assessed our situation, we just wouldn't get out of the cave and go hunting for the woolly mammoths because it would be so likely to die and you know, get ourselves yeah. a little bit injured and then you know, we died. Yeah. The, SWOT, the SWOT analysis wasn't, wasn't, wasn't promising. Yes, it wasn't promising, yeah. right. So in order to survive, we had to be more optimistic than the reality showed. So it was beneficial for our survival in the savanna environment now, in the current world, we're much less likely to be killed by saber-toothed tigers or during a hunt. So we need to be much more realistic about where we're going and need to introduce some pessimism into our analysis to make it ourselves realistic optimists, let's say it that way. Another one called the planning fallacy. Now, we have good opinion of ourselves. We have good opinion of our plans. So intuitively, we feel that all of our plans will go according to plan. And therefore, we distribute, uh, when we make a strategic plan, when organizations make a strategic plan, they distribute their resources and their investments, time, money, social capital, according to this plan. Unfortunately, they often don't think about all the problems that might arise that might give, yeah. get their plan into the wrong direction. And that's called the planning fallacy, where we tend to think, we tend to be way too optimistic about our plan. I was working with a manufacturing company in Pittsburgh, and they had an actual pretty serious problem with the planning fallacy where they did a heavy manufacturing in projects. So they would bid in a project and they would think it would cost 3 million and it would end up costing them 4 million. They would bid in a project that would cost them 5 million, it would cost them 7 million. So they had much lower profit margins than they should. In some cases, they lost money on projects. And what we looked at and what I helped them realize was that they were just finishing a project and they weren't thinking about what went wrong in the project. They were just leaving it and going forward to the next one. And that's a big, big problem. If you're not incorporating your information, what you learn from one project into future bids. So by changing that dynamic, by making sure that they had a process where they actually incorporated, learned, first of all, they learned from past projects, and then they incorporated what they learned into future bids, their future bids were much more realistic, much more aligned with reality. Clients were more willing to accept their bids because they provided this information on, hey, these are the kind of problems that we might see, and here's how we're going to take care of them. So clients were willing to pay higher prices for their bids because their bids were more realistic. And And great, great, 
yeah, and a greater reassurance in the fact that it has been thoroughly thought through, and the the, the likelihood of success is greater. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've all been we've all been there. <laughs> we've all not necessarily learned quick enough from the previous one until it happens again, and then you reflect back and you go. You also remember the you mentioned the survivorship bias. Yes. Uh, so survivorship bias is a big one. We tend to only look at information that survives for us to look at it, and we tend to ignore information that doesn't. So for example, if a leader thinks that they're a great leader and their organization should be doing well, they will, only be, they will not be considering information that they're not getting, that their organization is not doing well. They will yeah. be ignoring this information. They will be thinking, well, you know, it's, there's probably no information that exists. Whereas what often tends to happen is that their attitude conveys that their organization should be doing well and their subordinates don't bring them negative information about the organization. <laughs> yeah, the good news culture, yeah. Yes, the good news culture, being surrounded by all yes people and positivity people. These leaders, they, may not, they often don't realize that they're doing it. They're not doing it maliciously. They don't realize that that's, this is what's happening. They don't realize that their optimism, their charisma is inevitably causing the organization to stagnate and go in the wrong direction because negative information about the reality of, hey, there's some problems with our products, maybe some clients are not happy with how we're doing things. That information is being ignored. That information is being swept under the rug because people don't want to bring this information to them. And so they're not looking for this information and they're ignoring this information and this information doesn't survive to reach them. This is a serious problem, big, big problem in many organizations especially organizations in, especially in our current disrupted environment. I mean, right now, our environment is growing more and more disrupted by technology, by globalization, by a lot of forces. So companies that are standing stagnant, they're thinking, hey, our current process system culture will just keep doing it. Yeah. If, you, if you are thinking that, you're falling into the survivorship bias. You're falling into the bias where information about changes that are disrupting your environment and your market aren't reaching you. So you need to be especially suspicious if you think that everything is going to be fine and we don't need to change anything. It's uh, it's change to survive. It's, it, it reminds me of the, um, it's, it's often difficult to tell truth to power when power yes. reacts inconsistently to information. Uh, and, and equally, um, when, when we look at uh, my book, Go Beyond, we talk about going beyond agile and going beyond disruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to ensure that you don't just disrupt, but you actually um, build and grow and uh, develop uh, in a way where you move quickly, you you utilize what's available to you, but you do it in a way that's relevant to your own unique organization, and you don't just do things for the sake of it. Uh, and and the only way you can do that is to is to make sure that all of the information is being considered properly mm-hmm. um, so, so it sort of uh, comes in and, and it means that um, and, and the other phrase we use is for, for an organization to have agile process it first needs to have agile people mm-hmm. and, and, and that includes the leadership and the leadership's ability to respond to all types of information and data not just the good news Yes, and that's important. And it's too often not done because organizations 
are set up unless you deliberately set them up to reward people to bring you bad for rewarding bringing you bad news they will not bring you bad news because inherently just the way our gut reactions are wired we punish people who bring us bad news we don't like them and they're not promoted and they eventually leave the organization for ones that have a healthier culture (laughs) actually rewards people who bring bad news and promotes them lifts them up knowing that it's a very hard thing to do but incredibly necessary in our modern world for organizations to survive and thrive Uh, uh, exactly In, in order to sustain uh, any f- level of performance, one has to be taking in every every element of information, mm-hmm. and that's where the that's where the competitive advantages are in, for the future is yes. in the analysis of that type of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, but t- talk to me, um, you know, you mentioned the cognitive bias, and there are obviously a number of cognitive biases that provide danger in business decision making. Um, how can you tell which of those you are most vulnerable to? The easiest way to tell is to learn about them and then see which ones most resonate with you. So if you take a look at the Wikipedia page on cognitive biases, you'll see that there's a list of over 100 of them. I don't always recommend the Wikipedia page, but I know the people who are working on this, there are lots of cognitive biases out there and they're described there. Now, my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, looks at the 30 most dangerous ones in business settings and how they actually address them and solve them. And the last chapter, chapter seven, has an assessment on the 30 most dangerous cognitive biases and the behaviors associated with them, which will help you understand what's actually going on there. And then once you see if the behaviors are present in your organization, you can see how often and which ones are most present. So for example, for me, I tend to fall into the optimism bias quite often. This is a big problem for me. This is something when I was learning about this topic, I went into graduate school and learning about this, I'm like, oh, this is why I screwed up all those times. I'm too optimistic. I tend to be risk blind. I tend to have too high expectations. You know, I think the grass is green on the other side of the hill, whereas it's too often yellow. (laughs) And unfortunately, so I'm a business leader. I own a consulting company, Disaster Avoidance Experts, at disasteravoidanceexperts.com, which has six people, does training consulting. And lots of business leaders are in my position because they tend to be optimistic. If you are optimistic, you tend to get higher because you have more ideas. You generate ideas, you inspire people, you lead people. You know, I have a charming personality, charismatic personality, and most (laughs) optimists are. And this is what happens with business leaders. But that means that they tend to have 20 ideas before breakfast, and they tend to think that all their ideas are brilliant. We may be in in that same boat, yeah. Well, there you go. And this is a problem for people like me, for people who think their 20 ideas are before breakfast are all brilliant, because in reality, they're not, as I've learned to my best experience <laughs> over time, yeah. they often are bad ideas. So how, what you need to realize that, hey, if you're optimistic, you will naturally feel that your ideas are brilliant. You will naturally be creative, but lots of what you create will be garbage. And it's okay to realize that. You just need to realize that this is what happens in your brain. You won't realize which ones are garbage, which ones are good. That's why you need to work with pessimists. You need to get some people on your team. You, you should never hire only optimists. This yeah. is a well, uh, tendency. Yeah. Let's, that, go, let's go quickly into, oh, the disaster. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So this is a big problem for business leaders. They hire other people like themselves. You want yeah. to hire people who actually not, who don't reinforce your strengths. You want to hire people who complement your weaknesses. And, and recognize their value. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you hire a pessimist, you give them your 20 ideas, and they say, well, you know, these are half-baked potatoes, and maybe these three potatoes are worth finishing baking. And then yeah. they'll, their big strength is looking, judging ideas, evaluating them, and then improving ones that are worthwhile into a finished state. So that's kind of how you create, collaborate with optimists and pessimists effectively. So yeah. that's an example of where you want to learn that that's your weakness. And this is an example of how you compensate for each weakness because each of the cognitive biases can be addressed effectively through specific techniques relevant to that cognitive bias. Gave the optimism bias an example right now, talked about the planning fallacy earlier. So there are over a hundred of them and the 30 ones that are described in my book, I describe how to address each one effectively. Yeah, and you can learn, uh, and, and, and that's good, and, and it's uh, the book and, and, and various other sources uh, can help us to learn about them, and that's how we can uh, see where we're vulnerable. Um, you come up with a, an eight-step process to try mm -hmm. and frame uh, better decisioning. Yes. Um, just talk us briefly through that eight-step decision-making model. Sure. So this decision-making model actually automatically helps you address a lot of the cognitive biases that the book talks about that are, exist in our brains. So you don't need to, you should learn about them, but this technique will help you address a number of them automatically. First, you want to identify the need for a decision to be made. Now, this doesn't seem intuitive. Why, why do you need to identify the need for a decision to be made? Well, we often miss the moment that a decision needs to be made and we just go forth and we don't make a decision that really should be made. So for example, if for those who remember Polaroid, you know, shake it like a Polaroid picture, yeah. that was a big, good company and it was doing pretty well. Now in the early 1990s, it was realizing that, hey, the digital cameras are becoming more popular. How do we deal with them? And what it saw was that on its current film, its profit margins were 60%. And that on digital cameras, its profit margins are 38%. So it said, you know, we'll just stick with the film. We, we won't do anything about investing into the digital. Well, what they found was that 60% of nothing is still nothing. <laughs> and, they, and they went bankrupt in 2001. By contrast, Fujifilm was in a similar boat. They had film business, which was much more profitable. And they were looking at the digital camera becoming more popular. And they said, well, clearly digital cameras will become more popular. So what they did was they squeezed maximum profits from their film business and they invested all of that into digital. And they're still around right now doing really well. So yeah. that's one example of where a company succeeded in making a decision at the right time. Another one where it failed because they went with their intuitions and actually didn't do the right thing. Next, you want to gather relevant information. So step two, from a variety of informed perspectives about this topic. Now, informed perspectives need to be ones who have information different than you. Often people who disagree with you. Again, pessimists, people who, don't, who may not like your idea, people who may be skeptical of it. You don't have to follow their advice, but you want to hear them out. You want to get information that you currently don't have. That's incredibly important. Third, decide on the goals you want to reach. Paint a clear vision of what you want to see. Why did Kmart and Sears combine? Why did they join forces? Two weak retailers joining into a huge weak retailer. They didn't have any strategy. They didn't have any goals for going forward. They just thought that, well, bigger is better. It's not. <laughs> so that's an example where they didn't see a clear goal. There was no clear yeah. vision. And, they just... and there was no intended impact that related to any specific purpose that exactly. really defined that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that was a big problem. Next, develop clear decision-making criteria to evaluate your options. 
And you want to do that before you decide an option. So for example, if you want to hire a new CEO for your company, you're the chair of the board of directors, think about things like, let's say salary, fit to the culture, expertise, their social network, whatever you want to hire, maybe diversity, and think about how important each one is. How important is their salary compared to the fit to the culture and values compared to, let's say, diversity criteria compared to their social network and who they would be able to influence so that you have a ranking of which criteria are the most important ones. Then next, generate viable options to achieve your goals. This is a big one because a lot of research has shown that business leaders tend to find the first viable option and, and they say, <laughs> go. and this is a huge problem for yeah, decisions. For decisions that are major, like hiring the CEO, deciding on a new product plan, merger and acquisition, you never want to go with your first viable option because over time it will cost you so much to go with your first viable option rather than considering uh, uh, five viable options and making an informed choice. Absolutely right. And there's always more than one right answer. Yes. Yep. And you want to make sure that you choose the right answer. <laughs> the best right answer. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Then you weigh these options using the criteria you created before, you know, deciding which criteria are more important and which of these options score how much in each criteria, you pick the best of them. Then you implement the option you chose. Now, as part of the implementation, what you want to do before you actually implement, think about all the ways that this decision can fail. Think about all the ways your hire can fail, your merger and acquisition can fail, your new plan can fail, your product launch can fail. Think about how it can fail. And then see how you can, what are all the reasons for why it failed and how you can address, solve all these reasons in advance. You know, maybe the CEO that you hired, maybe they'll have a lot of experience, but they are coming from a very hierarchical authoritarian culture. So maybe what you want to do is if you really want this CEO and you have an open and dynamic culture, you need to really retrain them and make sure that they would be a culture fit, so they wouldn't bring their hierarchical dominating culture into this new organization. So that's an example. So you want to address all the failures in advance. Finally, evaluate the implementation process, revise as needed. Make sure that there are clear metrics of success on your plan, on your project. You know, how do you evaluate whether your merger and acquisition is successful? How do you evaluate whether your product launch is successful? Maybe you say something like, well, if we have you know, sales of 4.5 million within the first six months, then we will evaluate this new product as successful. If it's not, then we'll seriously revise the product launch and so on. So this is a way to specifically have metrics to evaluate your success and revise the decision as needed based on these metrics. Absolutely. Um, Gleb, one last question, finally, finally. Uh, and thank you so much for that, uh, for that insight and, and, uh, and, and really strong information. Um, but one of the little things that um, I your views around mental fitness and its role in <laughs> overcoming the dangerous judgment uh, and the errors that come with this cognitive bias. Where does mental fitness fit with this? So we talked about oh, the physical fitness. We talked about how doctors used to recommend to us to take snake oil as yeah. a cure to our problem. Now that would not make us very physically fit. Fortunately, we've had a hundred years of research since that time where evidence-based medicine has shown that, hey, you know, if you want to take that third chocolate chip cookie, that's a bad idea. Now the second one is okay, but the third <laughs> one is going too, much, too far. And that has, that's something that's helping control and address 
the obesity epidemic in developing country, developed countries around the world, which is a pretty serious issue, because our gut reactions tell us to eat as much sugar as possible. And that's a big problem. Same way, you know, we are tempted, our gut reactions tell us to be lazy, to sit on the couch and watch Netflix all day, rather than put on our shorts and sweats and go to the gym and go take a walk or something like that. Because it was important in the Savannah environment to conserve our energy. Now it's not so important in the modern environment and we know what we need to do for physical fitness. Now we're on the cutting edge. My book is actually the first one to describe how to fight cognitive biases in business settings. So we're just starting to populate. We're at the stage in the science and business, evidence-based business where we were with evidence-based medicine a hundred years ago, trying to fight the snake oil salespeople, medical. Absolutely. Absolutely. So right now we're discovering what it means to be mentally fit in business yeah. settings. You need to use effective strategic counterintuitive business strategies to make the, wi your, the wisest and most profitable decisions. You need to be mentally fit. And that means in the same way that you do the uncomfortable thing of not eating the third chocolate chip cookie and going to the gym and doing, being physically fit, you need to do the uncomfortable thing and use the effective decision-making strategies that have been shown to work and actually have a positive impact on your bottom line rather than just go with your gut reactions and fail in the mergers and acquisitions or other things that you're doing. So the, what mental fitness refers to is using these counterintuitive techniques, practicing them every day, just like you would you know, going for a walk every day. Yeah, and getting your play, yourself in a, in a position to be able to do that and, and, exactly. and be more neuroagile as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Neuroagility is part of it. So you yeah, want to be exactly. able to practice that. You want to practice these techniques every day because that's how you reinforce the muscle that is your mind. It's a muscle yeah. just like any other. And exactly. it's, the, it's the most important muscle in your body to yeah. be actually successful <laughs> in business. So that's what you want to be reinforced. You want to be mentally fit just as like you are physically fit. Ben, thank you very, very much indeed. It's been, it's been a fabulous insight, uh, an exploration of what is really a seriously important business concept. Um, I recommend the book highly. Uh, I hope lots of people listen to this podcast and share it with their friends. Uh, and I'm looking forward to continuing our discussions and, and, and uh, looking forward to catching up with you again very soon. I look forward to it again, Neville. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you.